This is Melissa, and today is the 15th of October, 2023. And I want to thank those of you who support what I'm doing because I am brought to you by you and will be. So support the website. If you like the videos that I am putting up on YouTube and BitChute and Rumble and Odyssey, then give them a thumbs up and share them, and you can also subscribe via Stripe, and I appreciate that. So that's that. I received an email from someone this week who mentioned a timely talk from Alan. And I was thankful for the heads up on it because Alan put out thousands of talks. It's really nice when somebody says, oh, hey, this is a great talk. And it turned out that this talk that Alan did on Republic Broadcasting Network on January the 28th, 2009, is indeed timely. It's entitled, One Ring to Bind Them All. And the poem that goes along with that. For those who live in the now, life's a constant mystery. For that which happens in the now has to do with history. While unplanned life guarantees crisis along its ramble, a powerful elite took the world, smashed it on an anvil. No generation has had peace because of machinations, this group has sworn to overthrow sovereignty of nations. They stir up and arm peoples offering solutions, solutions civic or on the field of bloody revolutions, circles within circles, wheels within wheels, dancing with the devil who makes perfidious deals. When the guns all fall silent and they ring the old peace bell, will be altered chipped, monitored in their utopian hell. So it's an excellent talk. It is timely. And Alan reads from the Anglo-American Establishment by Carl Quigley. And he gives many good insights and points about the Balfour Declaration, setting up an Ulster in the Middle East, and who some of these players are. I thought that I would actually just read you the Balfour Declaration because Alan has mentioned it many, many times, and it's quite brief. It's quite short. So here it is. From the Foreign Office, that's the UK, British government. From the Foreign Office, November the 2nd, 1917. Dear Lord Rothschild, I have much pleasure in conveying to you on behalf of His Majesty's Government, the following declaration of sympathy with Jewish Zionist aspirations, which has been submitted to and approved by the Cabinet. His Majesty's Government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people, and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object. 
it being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. I should be grateful if you would bring this declaration to the knowledge of the Zionist Federation. And that is signed by Arthur James Balfour. The authors, that is, who contributed to the wording of this, are Walter Rothschild, Arthur Balfour, Leo Amory, and Lord Milner, who is not listed as an author, but who was key to the shaping and the wording of this, was Chaim Weitzman, who was a Russian-born Zionist. Palestine, which at that time was 90% Christian and Muslim. I'm not sure how that broke down, what percentage were Christians and what percentage were Muslims, but Palestine is, of course, a land that goes back a long time in history and has been considered the holy land for all of the Abrahamic religions, those religions that come from Abraham, Christianity, Islam, Judaism. I mentioned earlier this week that it was important to have, to be able to kind of wrap your head around the history of religions in order to understand what is going on there. And I mentioned specifically dispensationalism and the Schofield Bible. Dispensationalism, something that takes the Bible literally, ties in several things which you can look up for yourself, premillennialism, that these are key concepts in, in understanding I think they're key concepts in understanding what's going on in the Middle East. Because what predated dispensationalism is something called supersessionism. I mentioned covenant theology, but supersessionism is a good starting point. And this idea, this theology was that Christianity replaced the Old Covenant. It was a new covenant. Therefore, Israel was no longer to be considered a place and a people in that place. It was a new Israel. The new Israel was spiritual Israel. And for the history of Christianity, the Roman Catholics, the Eastern Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, the Protestants, they all had a fairly uniform understanding that the New Covenant superseded the Old Covenant. Christians were now viewed as the chosen people spiritually. So there's that. Then came the idea of dispensationalism. 
interpreting the Bible as literal and things yet to come. And then you've got the Schofield Bible, and this is important because it reversed hundreds and hundreds of years of Christian thinking about salvation, grace, works, and replaced it with something that is going to happen in the future when the nation of Israel is restored to its land. That is basically a crude summation of dispensationalism. And it's, I think it's safe to say that you're not going to understand, none of us can understand what's happening there if we don't read some of those dusty old books like Quigley's Tragedy and Hope in the Anglo-American Establishment. These are really key to understanding that situation that is going on there. In more recent history and how peoples are used, you have Ronald Reagan and the moral majority and the evangelicals that were responsible for bringing him into being, and he was guided philosophically, you might say, by Jean Kirkpatrick, a neocon who loved authoritarian regimes, was a staunch supporter of Israel. And there's an irony there because she wrote about uh, the basically the U.S. no longer having its role as what you might say the policeman of the world, that it was to be that she saw a multipolar world coming into view. And yet at the end of Reagan's time in office, he had expanded the U.S. military by the number that I see, the amount that I see is 43% more than it was at the height of the Vietnam War. And then you also have his Star Wars that he set into motion. So, war. And Ronald Reagan also famously was on record speaking about Gog and Magog, these are revelation end time prophetic things that you will find in the Bible. He, light, he, Russia served this role for him. And then along comes George W. Bush, who claimed to be born again. Um, born again into what? I'm not sure. But it has been said that the evangelicals were responsible for more than 40% of the vote for him, um, that he simply would not have gotten into office without the vote of, in particular, the Southern Baptists. And again, you're talking about something that is a more literal interpretation of end-time prophecy. And he George Bush, George W., famously talked about Gog and Magog. You can look that up for yourself. In regards to 9-11, he brought into... Well, actually, I said you can look that up for yourself, but I'm going to read a little bit from an article that came out in The Guardian in 2009. Bush, Gog, and Magog. Just when you thought it couldn't get crazier, a well-sourced story claims Bush invaded Iraq because of Bible prophecies. 
Here's a story we should all be ashamed of missing. George W. Bush attempted to sell the invasion of Iraq to Jacques Chirac using biblical prophecy. In the winter of 2003, when George Bush and Tony Blair were frantically gathering support for their planned invasion, Professor Thomas Romer, an Old Testament expert at the University of Lausanne, was rung up by the Protestant Federation of France. They asked him to supply them with a summary of the legends surrounding Gog and Magog, and as the conversation progressed, he realized that this had originally come from the highest reaches of the French government. President Jacques Chirac wanted to know what the hell President Bush had been on about in their last conversation. Bush had then said that when he looked at the Middle East, he saw Gog and Magog at work and the biblical prophecies unfolding. But who the hell were Gog and Magog? Neither Chirac nor his office had any idea. But they knew Bush was an evangelical Christian, so they asked the French Federation of Protestants, who in turn asked Professor Romer. He explained that Gog and Magog were, to use theological jargon, crazy talk. They appeared twice in the Old Testament, once as a name and once in a truly strange prophecy in the book of Ezekiel. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Mesech and Tubal, and the prophecy against him, and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Mesech and Tubal, and I will turn thee back and put hooks into thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth and all thine army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords, Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all his bands, the house of Togarma of the north quarters, and all his bands, and many people with thee. Who are all these people? The best opinion is that like all Bible prophecy, it is a mixture of wish fulfillment and contemporary Iron Age politics. Some of it at least re seems to refer to the turmoil brought about by Alexander the Great in the 4th century BC. Unlike Bush, Alexander actually conquered Afghanistan. But they have been, for the last 200 years, the subject of increasingly excited evangelical fanfic. Especially in America, in the 70s and 80s, Gog was meant to be Russia. Ronald Reagan seems to have believed that. But with Reagan, the prophecy, association, the prophecy appreciation part of his brain functioned quite independently of the part that started wars. There's nothing in the Old Testament about Nicaragua or even Grenada. Bush seems to have taken the threat of Gog and Magog to Israel, quite literally, and if this story can be believed, to have launched a war to stop them. Can it be believed? We have calls out to Professor Romer and to the Protestant Federation of France. I'll report back if or when they get back to us. But the Romer story was published in the Lausanne University magazine in 2007 and looks perfectly credible there. It was repeated independently in a French book of interviews with Chirac this spring. 
I'm certainly inclined to believe it myself. It makes as much sense as anything else about vicious policy in Iraq. There is one last twist to the story. The prophecy concludes in a way that should make even George W. Bush flinch, having set his hooks in Gog, Magog, Mesech, Tubal, Old Gomer, Togarma, and all, and dragged them to attack Israel. What does God do to defend his chosen people? First, he gets mad. My fury shall come up in my face. And then he gets even. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel, so that the fishes of the sea and the fowls of the heaven and the beasts of the field and all creeping things that creep upon the earth and all the men that are upon the face of the earth shall shake at my presence and the mountains shall be thrown down and the steep places shall fall and every wall shall fall to the ground." And I will call for a sword against him throughout all my mountains, saith the Lord God. Every man's sword shall be against his brother, and I will plead against him with pestilence and with blood. And I will rain upon him and upon his bands and upon the many people that are with him an overflowing rain and great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Is that really what a true defender of Israel would wish to happen there? If there was anyone who suffered such things as a result of Bush's war, it was the poor Iraqis. Tricky stuff, the word of the Lord. And that is the end of the Guardian article. But it isn't the end of the story. Because as Alan points out in this talk, he references a clip that he was going to put up that he did where Brzezinski was exhorting the Arabs that their cause was righteous in Afghanistan. Their cause was righteous. They were doing the work of God. And Alan pointed out that specific writings have been pulled out of the Quran to basically militarize people, to use them. And the same thing can be said of Judaism, particularly in regards to Israel. Zionism is different than Judaism, but at this point they are so um, beautifully enmeshed in that region that it's kind of hard to pull it apart unless, unless you are willing to read the history of the British involvement. You know, a lot of people don't really realize that at World War One, war was declared on the Ottoman Empire, that troops were sent over to fight the Turks. So you think of um, World War One as being fought in Europe, but there's a whole other agenda that was going on. And part of that had to do with the Balfour Declaration and setting aside a place in the Middle East that they knew would be problematic. And that history is, is sad and it's fascinating because the Zionists were never content as, and the Arabs were never content with the solutions that the British proposed. It, remember that it was under British rule until after World War II when uh, Israel was declared 
its own nation, its own state, in 1948. So it's a, um, a long, amazing history, and you see terror attacks. Um, one terror attack that was orchestrated by Irgun and that it was a, um, a Zionist terrorist organization uh, was the bombing of the King David Hotel, which was made to look like it was done by Palestinians, but this was was done by a Zionist terrorist group. And when you get into this history, you see assassinations, you see infighting, you see uh, people that are not a unified front. I mean, one one interesting thing right now is that, remember, the people of Israel have not been happy with Netanyahu. Do you remember all of those protests that have been going on in the last year? So, who benefits? And then you have uh, an interesting connection to the bombing of the King David Hotel when you look at the Emmanuel brothers. That's Rahm Emanuel of Chicago, who was with Obama. Ari Emanuel is a head of a talent agency in Los Angeles, and he was recently speaking and calling for the immediate removal of Netanyahu, who allowed this to happen and who endangers the lives of Israelis. And their father, Benjamin Emanuel, was a member of Ergun and was involved in the bombing of the King David Hotel. Uh, there is a, a third Emmanuel brother who um, has was part of Joe Biden's COVID-19 response team. Interesting. It's an interesting world when you dive in and look closely at it. And it isn't unified. So that's why I'm, that, that is why I caution against hate that is geared unilaterally towards a people in a region. This is a mistake. There's no agreement there. There isn't. But you have a region that is, that has been used, that has been set up to be used for religious ends and political ends that we don't understand. And I use the word religious uh, loosely because we are talking about geopolitics. And immediately, within less than 24 hours of the attack of the Hamas on Israel, this, what was claimed to be intelligence failure, was blamed on Iran and their involvement, their support of Hamas and their involvement. And Iran, well, it's on the list, but it is also an ancient civilization and the birthplace of many religions itself. Iran, before it was known as Iran, was Persia. And one interesting thing that has come out of Iran in the last 150 years or so, I don't have the date in my mind right now, is Baha'i. Baha'i is another religion. 
and it has been persecuted in Iran and and other parts of the world. But Baha'i is really the religion of the United Nations, and that is another important thing to understand right now because we are moving into a new place that Alan talked about at the end of this poem when he said, when the guns all fall silent and they ring the old peace bell will be altered, chipped, monitored in their utopian hell. And in Bible prophecy, you have Armageddon, a place called Armageddon, and this is in the book of Revelation. It is a prophesied location of a gathering of armies. This is an end time fighting it out. You see Armageddon mentioned in Islamic theology. Hills of Megiddo, they're called a mountain or a range of hills. Megiddo and Armageddon factors into dispensationalism. And and remember, this is important because you have literally millions of Christians who have been influenced by this, that there is to be tribulation. There is to be end times tribulation. There was a song that Alan played on one of his blurbs. It was by someone who is really called one of the fathers of Christian rock, and his name was Larry Norman. Larry Norman's Peace Pollution Revolution, um, also known as Keep Your Eyes on Palestine. And I played it the other day. I just wanted to hear it again. And this time I heard some things that I hadn't really noticed before, but right at the end, He sings the word revolution, and then he sings the words peace and pollution, and then tribulation. And earlier in the song, he said, someday it won't be easy to stop and catch your breath because he's tying in pollution, you know, so he gets it all in there, you know, a green and sustainable agenda. And I don't think he had any awareness of that, but he's protesting this. He said, it's all in revelations. It's part of the design. And if you're truly wise, you'll keep your eyes on Palestine. So I'd always heard those lyrics, but it really didn't jump out at me until I listened to it this week that he said, tribulation. And I thought to myself, I bet that he was raised in some kind of um, Pentecostal, some kind of what we would call evangelical religious group. And sure enough, yes, he was. So he would have seen the world through the dispensationalist eyes. And that is important. It's important to understand the history of whatever brand of religion that you are clinging to and to understand how these will be used. And I mentioned Baha'i because it springs from Iran. It is being persecuted, but it is being protected and promoted by the United Nations. 
And here is the briefest little history of Baha'i. From the earliest days of the Baha'i faith in the mid-1800s, Baha'is have contributed to processes of global governance. With the founding of the League of Nations, Baha'is began to establish more formal relations with international organizations. Over the past 70 years, Baha'is have supported and contributed to UN efforts in the areas of social and sustainable development, gender equality, human rights, and UN reform, among others. The Baha'i international community is also coming to play a more active part in discussions at the regional level, and to this end has established offices in places such as Brussels and Jakarta. This is a quote on their website about us, the promise of world peace. The human race as a distinct organic unit has passed through evolutionary stages analogous to the stages of infancy and childhood in the lives of its individual members and is now in the culminating period of its turbulent adolescence approaching its long-awaited coming of age. So remember, Alan would give us the definition of peace. That is the absence of any kind of protest or revolt or revolution when it or well, as he describes it, it has become impossible. In looking through the news, I saw that um, Palestinians flee northern Gaza after Israel orders one million of them to evacuate. This is a third of the population, and so far, um, I, I think anybody who is paying attention knows that the, the population of Gaza is quite young. I think the average age is around 17. So it's a, it's a, this is a devastation. And for all of the Israelis who died, this is a devastation too. It, this is peoples, most of whom have no idea of their own history. They don't. Very few Israelis today are going to understand anything about the Balfour Declaration or Hitler's transfer agreement. These things won't be taught in school. They won't know about it. And so they're ignorant. And most alarming, they are ignorant of how they are being used. In the article that Alan read in this talk from 2009, he talked about Israel using Gaza as a testing ground for horrific new weapons. This came from the Irish Times. And there they were talking about phosphorus bombs. This is a fact. This happened then. What is being debated right now is that the Human Rights Watch has called out Israel once again for using phosphorus bombs. Israel has denied this. They have denied that they've used it. And phosphorus munitions are kind of tricky because it is still <clears throat> legal to use them for marking a spot, signaling, obscuring an area, but it is not to be used for 
uh, a weapon that can set fire to people and objects. Uh, so, and the Israelis have said that they phased this out after the 2008-2009 offensive in Gaza. So it's an ugly place that we are in. And I think I wanted to go on about this just a little bit more because when you get holy books and holy places tied into the mix, people lose their heads. There is emotion and anger and righteous indignation where perhaps there oughtn't be, where people should be taking a beat and saying, do I know everything? The propaganda right now is relentless. It's relentless. And in many ways, it's similar. It's identical to what came out in 2009. If you look then you had a, yeah, there was a young Palestinian college girl that seemed to be everywhere talking about what was going on in Gaza. And now there is another Palestinian college-age girl, very sympathetic, big-eyed, lovely, who is talking about the devastation. So... When propaganda works, why stop it? And the things that have been said when uh, Biden talks about babies being beheaded and then people say, well, let, let's take a beat. Do we know this? Has this been proven? It's the initial, and, and people who put out propaganda know this, it is the initial story that sticks in people's minds. So the Biden administration can step back from those comments and then it can later be said, oh, well, we don't have proof of that or that didn't happen or it didn't happen in the numbers that we said it happened. It, it makes no difference because I am seeing protesters on college campuses who are holding up signs that say 50 babies beheaded. And this is how propaganda works. It sticks, it takes on a life of its own. People choose sides. And right now there is anger. And it's understandable why. As Alan made clear in this talk from 2009, the people in Gaza are in an open-air prison. They are in a cage. They have been. And now they are being wiped out in huge number. And we don't really understand. We can't understand until we do an awful lot of homework and an awful lot of reading of history. Otherwise, when we're living in the now, as Alan's poem said, it really is a mystery. Here is Alan. Hi, I'm Alan Watt, and this is Cutting Symmetry on the 28th of January 2009. Newcomers can look into cuttingthroughthematrix.com and on the website you'll find lots of previous talks I've given which you can listen to at your leisure and I try to patch in a lot of history that's omitted from mainstream books. I even tell you of the societies that ensure that happens since they're in control of pretty well all of mainstream media. 
and it certainly is better to understand the big picture, uh, however horrific it might be. And it truly does freak a lot of people out when they understand how overwhelming it seems that this big monster system is. But it's been the goal for a long time. And when you start to understand that, the panic should subside to an extent when you realize that you're living through a script, a script that involves every population on the planet, every nation on the planet as we're guided through into like a business plan we're, we're guided into a new world order that to some at the bottom who helped champion it like the Greenies think it's going to be a wonderful utopia but those with eyes to see at what's happening around them today with the total information network society cameras everywhere and so on it's going to be more of an Orwellian system at least in this phase as the present generations live and then die off they work in centuries, they plan centuries ahead, and they literally bring on wars, they have factions on all sides to guide the wars to their proper conclusions and really to affect the changes in society that war brings. They get both sides bring off in the same new path, whereas before there would be at loggerheads. Also look into Alan Watt Sentinel.eu for transcripts which you can Download the transcripts of these talks and you can print them up. They're written in the various languages of Europe. I don't ask for money from the shows that I go on and I'm asked on an awful lot of shows and I don't accept them all. Depends what their format is. But uh, I depend upon the listener to help support me and buy what I have for sale on my website at cuttingthroughmatrix.com. That keeps me going and believe you me, there's no big income comes in here. If I wanted it to be so, I would bring on lots of advertisers and I'd bring on subscriptions and so on. And that's what all the other ones do to survive. The ads you hear on this show help to go and pay for the program that helps the staff go, helps their paychecks, helps them buy the equipment and maintain the equipment, which is not cheap these days. And that's where the advertising money goes it's from the ads that you hear on the show. So if you want to support me and get the information that I'm given out to you, you know where to, where to get it or how to do it. Just go to cuttingthematrix.com website and you'll find out how to do it there. You can also donate as well. And so much for my shameless self-promotion. I won't overdo it. It's a pity I have to do it at all, but that's what happens in the society where everything supposedly is for free. I've been going on about how societies, mainly one big society that has circles specializing in different areas of economics and all that comes from economics, including societies, industry, material wealth of the world, and so on, how they came into being. And that was part, supposedly, of their agenda, starting with the Cecil Rhodes Foundation, which really was a continuation of a society that was already on the go in Britain. And I'd like to go into how they've affected the world today, especially some of the things that are still happening today, and how they set up the conflict for future wars back after this break. I've gone over quite a few topics in the last few weeks to do with how systems are set up, how the culture is set up in different countries, and how commerce dominated the culture in America and how it was manipulated to do so 
by people like Bernays and others who came on the scene, uh, people who were supposedly outstanding at their time, and certainly were, because he started at the age of 24, helping at the League of Nations set up uh, different organizations of propaganda that be eventually called public relations. It sounds better than straight propaganda. It's still propaganda nonetheless. And he was a past master, well-trained in the techniques from previous centuries. But all of these people, when you put them together and you find the links between them, all goes back to this group in London, England, that was setting up a world stage, a world society. They had world citizenship ideals, and they mentioned them frequently right down through the ages, and they still do today. In fact, Mr. Rockefeller gives out the World Citizenship Awards. They use round-table societies to debate problems that come out of the big meetings, the world meetings, of the Royal Institute for International Affairs and the CFR, and the round tables hammer out ways to implement those policies into society through, again, persuasion, propaganda, schools, every means at their disposal. And they are so well funded by the big institutions, the big foundations, which were set up by the banking fraternities that work in league with this group called the Royal Institute for International Affairs, CFR. The foundations, supposedly, according to Quigley, were first set up uh, when the inheritance taxes came in and death duties taxes and so on came in and the big families found ways around them. So they set up the foundations which became the nucleus of keeping the aristocracy going, a parallel government that ran alongside democracy that was unimpeded by public debate or argument and they could get their agendas done without any hassle. Make, make the mandate and carry it forward and get it done. Very, very simple. But they also had categorized the world because they'd used previous members before them that their studies that they'd done on the populations of the world, they were into eugenics. We must never forget this. Uh, they were using the foundations of Darwinism to explain their theory of the world and to explain the different temperaments in different cultures and society. They were the ones who categorized the Arab populations in amongst what they called the Mediterranean group. They didn't like the Mediterranean group too much. And you find that in H.G. Wells, another member, uh, he wrote about it, he categorized them in the outline of history, his own books, the different cultures and subcultures. He wasn't too fond of them. And this particular group were the ones who set up the League of Nations, they set up the Treaty of Versailles, they ran the Treaty of Versailles, they ran the negotiations, they've always drafted up the policies for Britain and the United States together, and through their contact, I mean contact in the U.S. at that time, they ran President Wilson through Mandel House, Colonel Mandel House. And it was, it was the United States who supplied the money and the financing to set up the League of Nations, which turned into the United Nations. Well, what's that got to do with today? Uh, uh, very few people, hopefully, might ask. Very few. Because history is very important. And all the problems we have today were foreseen by them 100 years ago because they set up the future. And they did big plans for the Middle East. Very big plans. 
they withdrew so many troops from the front lines in Europe in World War I and suddenly brought them over to Palestine and Egypt because they planned to bring another group in that they would use they would use basically as something that would, that would keep the Arab world on its tiptoes for the next hundred years and that was the state of Israel Professor Carl Quigley who was the historian for this group talks about it in page 171 actually before that as well and they categorized the, the personality types of the Arabs they, they lumped everybody in together now remember their whole idea was first to get the English speaking countries together as a whole, a block as a nucleus for a world federation and that included the United States of America the next part was to get a united Europe through war, through conflict and then peace resolution they would get hopefully if they, they won their um, long aspired dream of a united Europe but they also had plans for uniting Africa that's still going underway today uh, as a uni- unify, they try and unify Arab, uh, Africa into one country remember what Karl Marx said that at first you must have wars of national liberation I mean when you think you're free then you must have centralized government that's a key to it, centralization of government the same thing happened in the US with the civil war it's about centralization of government so much so that Karl Marx telegraphed Lincoln and that's on display in the records and said he'd done the greatest thing by centralizing government they also wanted to get a federated Arab League as well together and all these different leagues would eventually be absorbed into one world governmental system and that's always been their goals and aspirations it still is but remember <coughs> they've always been behind the wars to get the wars going the conflict must be begin and tonight uh, on my website I'll put up a link to a YouTube video on Brzezinski it's a hard one to say Brzezinski Brzezinski and this man like most of these members of the trilateral group which is one part of the CFR and the CFR he belongs to you'll see him uh, 30 years ago helping to stir up the jihad with the very people they're bombing today and you'll even hear him saying hear of all people saying that God would be with them God would be on their side the people don't realize the CIA set up what's now called Al-Qaeda which really was just a code name for all different factions to come into and communicate through basically a radio system and they used them and they, used, they even gave them special writings on their holy book, the Quran to show them why they should be in a holy war they dreamed up into a holy war and right through the whole war that they had with Afghanistan and the Soviet Union and so on uh, the US and Britain were pushing the Arabs to form into these warrior groups and supposedly this is the outcome of them today where we have one of them gone rogue supposedly and that's why we're all, we all must start wearing chains of surveillance supposedly to keep us all safe so you'll, see, you'll hear Brzezinski give the speech himself to the young men 
that he wanted to go off and fight. He also, also put a link up to Mr. Rockefeller, who never retires. It's incredible. He's all over the globe with details. And you see, you'll see him going, going to and talking to the, the, the Council on Foreign Relations and other institutions which they, all, they own. They all own, they own all of the, the groups that are amalgamating the Americas. He funds every single group, and that's, that's on this video as well. So you can, you can watch that. It's astonishing. But it all falls exactly in line with Carl Quigley's book, Tragedy and Hope, and the other one, The Anglo-American Establishment. It's following it to the letter. And a federated Latin America joins with a federated North America, a member of Federation of the Americas. Then we are to join with the Federation of Europe. And then well, that will also eventually bring in more and more countries and so you're left really with the Far East, and that's already been done because the other branch that was set up 70-odd years ago was the Institute for Pacific Relations, the IPR, which was the Royal Institute for International Affairs, a front group for that very purpose. And pretty well all the prime ministers Australia's had for the last 20, 25, 30 years has been a member of this, working towards this goal of unification. From the Anglo-American establishment, this is relevant for today. And we've all heard about what's happening in Gaza. There's no great outcry from the media. They tell us all about it. Well, they don't tell us all about it. They tell us what we're supposed to know. Like, isn't this awful? As people who are really in a cage are being slaughtered from the air by an advanced military air force. Why is it all happening? And why is it all being allowed to happen? <clears throat> the last thing people think of is a mandate set up a long, long time ago. And who set it up? Here's an article just before I talk about give it from the Anglo-American establishment. And it's from the Irish Times newspaper. That they're using phosphorus clouds. This is a form of weaponry. Phosphorus burns right through you. You have to go into, into darkened surgery rooms to see all the bits of phosphorus that are glowing in the bodies of the people. And it says here, We are guinea pigs to the Americans and Israelis, says Dr. Abu Shaban. The Americans give the Israelis new weapons. And it's true that the U.S. has given them the weapons. The world knows this. And they try them out on us. This is, this is from Dr. Sobi Shaikh who's a member of the Royal College of Surgeons in Edinburgh, who is there at the moment, telling about the advanced weaponry that the microchips are using. They're now in the bodies of the people. Now read this when I get back from this break. Hi, folks. I'm Alan Watt, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix going into the past to understand the present. And only by understanding the past does the present make any sense at all. Uh, I'm discussing at the moment what's, ha what's happening there in the Gaza Strip. And I'm reading from an article from the Irish Times 
where all kinds of high-tech weaponry, new types are being used on people there who are, who are technically in a cage and being bombed. And it says here, this is from Dr. Sobi Shaikh, member of the Royal College of Surgeons in Edinburgh. They're definitely testing weapons on us, it says. The amount of damage done by these weapons is not commensurate with, to the wounds. We found computer chips, magnetic pieces, and transistors in wounds. Sometimes there are only minute pinpoint punctures to the abdomen and chest, but you can see huge damage to internal organs. One patient had his liver burn black as if it had been grilled. We think there must be something embedded in the human body that is releasing poison and killing. And it also has quite the articles on the effects of the phosphorus as well as people are getting carried off still alive and their bodies are burning from within. Incredible. And the world just goes back and says, tisk tisk isn't that awful. And we wonder why that is. Why is it the United Nations can come into every other country, supposedly? Look what happened in Bosnia. They've been all over the globe. But you must understand, first of all, when you really understand the politics and geopolitics of every area they go into, there's always resources that they're after. Because their UN is a front, another front of the Royal Institute for International Affairs. And it was from its beginning since they founded it. And the Rockefeller Foundation, that was part, and still is, the main part really in the U.S., of the CFR, put the money up for it and gave them the land for the United Nations. It's geopolitical and financial economics. Going back to the setting up of modern-day Israel, I've talked about Sir Ronald Storrs before, and others who, are, who belong to the Milner Group of the Royal Institute for International Affairs. And Balfour and others who drew up the Balfour Declaration that had contained in it a home for Jews put in there that Britain was all for it, supposedly, from the governmental side of view. Now, they ran the government at that time, too, completely. And quickly, in his own books, makes no bones about that. Now, remember, he was a historian with their records, with a separate history that fills in all the blank spots. Not the stuff you get at school. The stuff you get at school even tells you uh, are, are published and written by the members of this group, so that's how you get this different history for school books. It's astonishing. An Anglo-American establishment says that the attitude of the Milner group towards the Arabs and Jews can be seen from some quotations from members of the group. At the peace conference of 1919, which, remember, they set up themselves, Discussing the relative merits of the Jews and Arabs, one of their members, Smuts, who was sent there, said, They haven't the Arabs' attractive manners. They do not warm the heart by graceful subjection. They make demands. They are bitter, recalcitrant little people, and like the bores, impatient of leadership, and ruinously quarrelsome amongst themselves. They see God in the shape of an oriental potentate. A few years later, John Dove in a letter to Brand, another member of the group, asked him, see that spies all over the place, seeing the lay of the land, asked himself why there was so much pro-Arab feeling amongst the British, especially the public school caste. And the public school caste actually is private in Britain. It's misleading there. They call it public schools. It's private. And attributed it to the Arabs' good manners, derived from the desert life, their love for sport, especially riding and shooting, both close to the heart of the, the public, which is private schoolboy. 
little later in another letter also written from Palestine, Duff declared that the whole Arab world should be in one state, a federation of Arab states, that was her goal. And it must have Syria and Palestine for its front door, not be like South Africa with Delagoa Bay in other hands. The Arab world, he explained, needs this western door because we are trying to westernize the Arabs and without it they would be driven to the east and to India, which they hate. And he concluded, if the Arab belongs to the Mediterranean, as T.E. Lawrence insists, to this categorized all the peoples, including the Irish, we should do nothing to stop him getting back to it. By our own nostrum, for the ills of mankind everywhere is Western civilization, and if it is a sound one, what would be the good of forcing a people who want direct contact with us to slink in and out of their country by a back door, which, like the Persian Gulf, opens only on the east. And by the way, that's why Britain pulled all those men from World War I off the trenches into this area. It was to set up another group in those areas to initially cause conflict, but it would be an outpost for up to a 100 years. Because, it, because most of those Jews were European Jews. So it bringing a European culture into the Arab countries as an outpost. And that's what, what Storrs referred to when he said, we have set up a modern Ulster in the Middle East. That's what the, the British government did. They set up an Ulster, a little, a little Britain in Ireland that would be a thorn in the side of Ireland throughout the present times. This is a technique we're talking about here. And here they are using the same thing in the Middle East. And then it goes on to say, gives a speech that Mr. Milner himself, Lord Milner, gave in 1923 in the House of Lords, 27th of June. When he talks about this and the whole outline for the Zionist colony, I'll be back with more to read this after these messages. Hi folks, I am Alan Watford, cutting to the Matrix putting the past and present together because you have to understand why policies are made. It gives you the picture as to why terrible things can happen for up to 100 years sometimes because the policy will not change. And the policies were made by a very powerful group that still runs the world today. In fact, they're setting up the last phases of unification for the Americas. And then the amalgamation, which has been mentioned by the Prime Minister of Canada, as planned a hundred odd years ago by the Milner and Royal Group and the Royal Institute for International Affairs to merge with Europe once that's all done. And they never changed their plans. They never changed their plans. This is astonishing. So here's what Lord Milner says in 1922. Actually, it was 1923 he made this speech. And he talks about the Balfour Declaration and the White Paper of 1922, CMD 1700. He he added, I'm not speaking of the policy which is advocated by the extreme Zionists, which is a totally different thing. I believe we have only to go on steadily with the policy of the Balfour Declaration as we have ourselves interpreted it in order to see great material progress in Palestine. Now, they drafted the thing up in the first place. And a gradual subsistence of the present Arab agitation. He says, so here they're saying they're going to have material progress in Palestine if they bring the Zionists in because of their wealth. But he also acknowledges the fact that it was agitation, and that's what happens when people have been brought in to your land and they're taken over. He 
basis of the force of which it would be foolish to deny, but which I believe to be largely due to artificial stimulus and to a very great extent to be excited from without. They always, they always blame outsiders coming in to help. That's what we have today. Insurgents, you see, they call them. They use that same term in Vietnam. Insurgents, find them. Uh, you know, you, you, it's astonishing. These same guys in the 1800s were agitating for revolution across the planet. They trained the young leagues, the young Turks, the young Italians, and all the rest of it for rebellion from within to overthrow their existing governments so they could bring in this beautiful new world order then. One of, the, one of their guys, a young Turk, that's what they call them, the young Turks, was a guy who started World War I by killing the Archduke Ferdinand, blowing him up. So here they are, creating this new thorn, a new ulster that we set up in the Middle East, amongst another people. And this is the man who was behind a lot of it, saying what he, he thought about it, at least publicly, was a lot to publicly say. He said, the symptoms of any real and general dissatisfaction amongst the mass of the Arab population with the conditions under which they live, I think, it would be very difficult to discover. There's plenty of room in that country for considerable immigrant population without injuring in any way the resident Arab population, and indeed, in many ways, it would tend to their extreme benefit. There are about 700,000 people in Palestine, and there's room for several millions. I am and always have been a strong supporter of the pro-Arab policy which was first advocated in this country in the course of the war. Of course he was, because his group put that out too. They all run all sides. I believe in the independence of the Arab countries, which they owe to us, because, after all, Britain had supposedly wiped out their, their masters. They were the Turks that had run it. The Ottoman Empire had run those countries for a long, long time and which they can only maintain with our help. I look forward to an Arab federation. You see, they wanted federated peoples across the planet to bring into this world society, the planned society. I'm convinced the Arab will make a great mistake in claiming Palestine as a part of the Arab federation in the same sense as the other countries of the Near East, which are mainly inhabited by Arabs. So Arab was to be, Palestine was to be given a special place in all of this. A special place. But not to be allowed to really to have too much power. So he calls it a mistake if they go after more power. In page 173, they put pressure on the government of Britain to alter certain things in their favor for this federation. This is what it says here. As may be expected, in view of the position of Reginald Copeland on the Peel Commission, the report of that commission met with the most enthusiastic reception from the Milner Group, the guy who just gave that speech. This report was a scholarly study of conditions in Palestine of a type usually found in any document with which the Milner Group had direct contact. For the first time in any government document, the aspiration of Jews and Arabs in Palestine were declared to be irreconcilable. They could not get on together an existing mandate unworkable. Accordingly, the report recommended the partition of Palestine into a Jewish state, an Arab state, and a neutral enclave containing the, the holy places. See, that's how it's still set up today. 
The suggestion was accepted by the British government in a white paper, CMD 5513, issued through Ormsby Gore, another member. They're all members of this organization. He also defended it before Permanent Mandates Commission of the League of Nations. In the House of Lords, it was defended by Lord Lugard, but recently retired as the British member of Permanent Mandates Commission. That Permanent Mandates Commissions. As I'm saying, they create a mandate and they'll carry it for 100 years if need be or more. In the House of Commons, the, nation, the motion to approve the government's policy as outlined in the White Paper 5513 was introduced by Ormsby Gore. The first speech in support of the motion, which was passed without a division, was from Leopold Amory, another member of the group. At one point afterwards, he said in 1923, this Amory, Amory's speech in support of this motion is interesting because in 23, Amory said, However much we may regret it, we have lost the situation in Palestine as we lost it in Ireland through a lack of wholehearted faith in ourselves and through the constitutional inability of the individual Britain and indeed of the whole country not to see the other fellow's point of view and to be influenced by it even to the detriment of any consistent policy. You understand, the British people were not for this happening. It didn't make any sense to them to allow another people to come in and push off the people who were already there. He thought that was unreasonable. They wouldn't accept this new mandate. Also at that time, you had open warfare in some of the cities like London going on between the Zionist factions and, and the Orthodox Jews. The Zionist factions were really a, a branch, a, a revolutionary branch set up by the Royal Institute for International Affairs as they set up so many other ones across the world, to be used for a particular purpose, which, of course, they profit by as well. You find one of their main members of the Cedar Rhodes Foundation, one of the founding members with him, in fact, the man who took over Cedar Rhodes' policy for the Rhodes Trust, was Lord Rothschild himself, who'd also been funding an immigration policy into Palestine from the 1800s. And they couldn't get enough of them. And most of them at that time came from Russia. So Amory said in 1923, however we may, we may regret it, we have lost the situation in Palestine. As we lost it in Ireland and so on and so on and so on. In other words, they just didn't know that, that the Zionist faction would simply take over and run off with it. Of course they knew that because that was the plan all along. That was the plan all along. They deceived the Arabs. It was quite open about it. And other documentation. And the plan was to put up an Ulster, an Ulster in the Middle East, and that's what we're going through today. We're suffering because of the policies of that period. It's astonishing, as I say, and, and if you look at those links I'll put, I'll put up at the end of the show tonight, it's astonishing. And Quigley even said it in his book that a small group of people could have such incredible power and literally run nations and all the institutions within those nations, including all the politics and all the factions, including all of the media, including all of academia, and right down to the school books that you'd read and what would be in them, written by their own members, with all of their histories and so on. It's scary, because they still do it today. And it's all about world federation at all costs. All and any cost doesn't matter. 
the links I'm putting up tonight too, you'll hear Mr. Rockefeller thanking the media for keeping quiet about the Council on Foreign Relations' roles in constructing up this big, brand new, brave new world and not publishing what happened within the meetings because they're all members of the the society. That's why they don't publish it. But he thanks them openly. In fact, he says they could have gotten away with what they were doing without the compliance. That's how we're truly wrong. We're really wrong. But powerful, powerful institutions which comprise the biggest banking families on the planet who fund the foundations that funds all of the hundreds and thousands of non-governmental organizations that gives out grants to every university across the planet along with, of course, suggestions of what to teach, what not to teach, what to say, what not to say. And we grew up in this world reading their media, kept in utter confusion, watching horror along with trivia, all combined together in a surrealistic circus as we're mind-bombed into stupidity. And out of that stupidity, we're all fighting each other. And yet the evidence is all there. Using all of the sciences at their command, and especially the art of psychological warfare on the public, mind control, basic mind control is not difficult whatsoever. It's not difficult when you control all of the media. It's not difficult when the sciences that can create whole cultures have been used for over a hundred years at least and gave us the culture. These are the same boys that wanted for a period the consumer society because from the consumer society you can tax them massive taxation and they take the taxation back and fund scientific organizations along certain paths. They tell them what they want. Science, like everything else, like society itself, could go off in hundreds and hundreds of directions, but they don't. Why do you think, from the Roaring Twenties up until 1960, the mandate was to get something to do with contraception? Because they didn't have it in the Roaring Twenties when they were pushing the drugs on the public that prohibition which made booze cans sexy and they brought in the miniskirt and music the fallout was incredible apart from the diseases that broke out they didn't have the antibiotics either they didn't have the facilities to take care of all the abortions the side effects of having fun they didn't have enough orphanages to take in the unwanted children they came out of it as well so they went to the drawing board and they were funded. All these scientists were funded. And that's all they worked on for years and years was contraception, like the pill. And lo and behold, penicillin broke out not long before that. So for the first time they could treat some of the venereal diseases. The same foundations then funded front groups. Front groups as always to protest and demand abortion rights. Incredibly well-funded. Governments chipped in as well. Because when you go into grant-taking from government, you'll find out that you will get a grant 
if you're pushing for radical change. And I clued into that in Canada when I was asked to sing in a place and they asked me if we'd sing anything more radical. I asked them why. This is because that's where they try to get their funding from the government for radical change. And I met a whole bunch of people that were no doubt far left communists. In fact, one of them came over from the Moscow University to teach the next part of the strategy of networking all of the left-wing groups together. And he thought I was one of them since I was in, I was there after with all the artists after a show. And I, 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 he was from England. And this is during the Cold War. I says, you're living in California, but you're going to cross the planet and you're taught in the Moscow University as to how it caused further radical change within America. And he said, yeah. I says, well, don't never stop you at borders. And he looked at me kind of quizzically, like, didn't I know? Wasn't I in on the know? And I wasn't. Then he realized there was another party working all sides. Of course, he didn't get stopped anywhere. It was the same with Peter Wright, who worked for MI5 and MI6, who wrote Spycatcher. He goes through the whole process of the main spies in England, who all came from the aristocratic families. And they had one thing in common, the ones who were from Britain, who worked for the Soviets, They'd all been boarded as students at university by the Rothschild family. And he put in his book the fact that even though Rothschild was the main suspect, at the end of it all, they made that same Victor Rothschild head of all the security agencies in Britain, even though he was the main suspect. He's trying to tell you there was another level running both communism and what we thought of as capitalist system. Rothschild's job was to make sure, and the spies' jobs was to make sure that the guys at the top ensured there were no accidents down below. Everyone down below, right down to the, to the soldiers and those who commanded the weapons systems, had to think it was real. The whole population had to think it was real. That was the purpose of it, to terrify us into, my God, we need a global system, a global government, we can't go on like this. And every time the Peter Wright and others were tipping off the head of their, their, their organization, someone tipped them off, these spies off, and they got out of the country. Now the only ones above their boss was their royal family who got in a black box every, every day, the latest recommendations of the plans of who they're going to pick up as agents, etc. They even grilled the heads, the subsequent heads of MI5 and MI6 to see if they'd lead to doubts. See, the aristocracy, this big organization with its front groups, ran both sides of everything, covering a bit of ground tonight as you bring the past closer to the present to realize what's happening today was planned an awful long time ago and things that make no sense to people today don't alter their course it continues, horror continues because there's a mandate on the go and it's part of geopolitics geopolitics is an old, old game played by Britain 
an establishment. That's why Bonaparte called them perfidious Britain or perfidious England because they kept making alliances and pitting one side of the alliance against another side of an alliance and having them go to war with each other to weaken the powerful through war. They've used this down through history. That's part of the policy. standard technique and policy. It's still in work today. As I say, the United Nations will not go into certain countries because the United Nations was set up and run and goes on the mandate and goes by the principles of the Royal Issue for International Affairs, Council and Foreign Relations, and take your pick of what name you want to give the same group because Quigley tells you in Tragedy and Hope and the Anglo-American establishment that they are the same group. They have branches in every country across the planet. They also run the round table societies. They're hard at work for global citizenship. Now remember too, what is citizenship? It means you're born with a pre-existing duty to a system. You should remember that at all times. How can you be free if you're born into a system with pre-existing duties? Think about it. And the world they want to bring in is a world of servitude to the world state. And now the economic powers, once again, because it's the same combination of the big bankers, are bringing us into a stage of helplessness where we'll ask them for help. And they will provide it with a brand new system, a new way of living, because the time for consumerism is over. We don't, they don't need our massive taxes anymore that they took from us to pay for the war machinery and all the logistical supplies, etc. It goes with it. In a world order, it's different. And you'll eventually serve the world system. Remember, one of their members, Charles Galton Darwin, in his book, The Next Million Years, that's quite the boast too. Think of it, The Next Million Years. He's talking about how the elite will run it and putting himself in that category, of course. He said there has always existed a system of slavery and we are simply creating a more perfected system of slavery, a system in which the public don't realize that they are, in fact, slaves. How would that happen? Well, it is happening. People, if they're given enough little toys to play with, enough education, not education, but entertainment, circuses, bread and circuses, and games to play, and have the little routines which are worked out and studied perfectly. There's so many studies in universities about the routines of people as they go through the internet and scour the groups and subgroups and all the rest of it. They even have a project to see how all the friends that you talk to on your cell phone, what you all have in common that makes you actually connect to each other. We're all studied like rats. But most folk will go into loving their slavery as long as they can keep their subgroups and a few little toys to play with. And it'll be presented to them as the only way out of the mess we're in. From Hamish, Hamish myself in Ontario, Canada, it's good night. May your God or your gods go with you.